Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name is Shelley Johnson. I'm a HR professional. Hey, Em. Hey, Shell. I'm Emily Bowen, and I work for a business called Forsyth's Recruitment and HR. My day-to-day is all about exactly that and creating really great customer experiences for people at work or looking for work. Nice. And on the show today, we're very stoked to have Michelle Givings joining us. Today's episode has been a long time coming. We are talking about one of the worst problems in the workplace bad bosses. We've all experienced a bad boss. You've worked for one, you've managed one, or maybe you've even been a bad boss. Whatever the scenario, it is not a good time. Your boss has such a crazy and disproportionate impact on your satisfaction and engagement in your career. And so we wanted to do this episode to give you practical tools if you're encountering a bad boss, or maybe if you are a bad boss. We're joined by workplace expert Michelle Gibbings, and she has literally written the book on bad bosses. We're going to ask her about her latest book that's been released, Bad Boss, What to Do If You Work for One, Manage One, or Are One. And she gets really practical about what to do if you're in one of those scenarios. She's an author, executive mentor, organizational leader, and we are stoked to be hanging out with her today. Take control of your finances with a bank that's here for good. Newcastle Permanent puts your needs first and invests back into local communities. That's not bad. Visit newcastlepermanent.com.au and experience the difference. Enjoy the show. Hi, Michelle. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? We are good. We're good, yeah. This has been coming for a while. I think we might have initially spoke on LinkedIn about three months ago and we were, we'd been talking. Em and I had wanted to do this episode on, on bad bosses, essentially. Yes. So often we just hear these horror stories about what it's like uh, to have a bad boss or we receive these questions saying, I know what I want, but I just don't feel like I can get what I want while I'm working for this horrible person. And so it's absolutely been on our episode wish list for some time. And we came across you, Michelle, and you've written a book, Bad Boss. Can you just um, share a bit about that? Sure. Look, it's funny because when the we, I was playing with the title, my brother-in-law was suggesting we call it Bastard Bosses, um, <laughs> <laughs> but that didn't quite make it through the publisher. And, and look, it, it's interesting because part of the genesis for the book was when I look at the work that I do now, people don't typically come to me and say, oh, Michelle, I can't work out this particular problem. It's I've got a challenge with a relationship. You know, I don't like my boss or I find them difficult to work with or the boss says, I've got a team and it's dysfunctional, they're not connected Um, or the senior leader goes, I've got direct reports but I just 
not sure about how they're managing their team. I'm hearing things that things aren't working well. And, you know, if I reflect on my time in corporate, and I've said this to a number of people, you know, I've been in all three categories. I've worked for a bad boss. I've been for a bad, I've been a bad boss and I've managed bad bosses. So I share a lot of personal experience as I go through the content, but it was really coming from this philosophy that it's very easy to blame others. It's very easy to point the finger and if when something's not working to say, oh, it's that person's fault. Everyone plays a part and this is very much about taking accountability, looking at the system, working out what's going on, looking at the relationship and going, okay, start with me. What can I do first to change what's, what's happening and the impact that it's having on me? And to your point, in all three scenarios, whether it's you that's the bad boss, it's someone you're working for, or it's someone that you're responsible for, from an organisational structure point of view, I think to start with yourself is... It makes sense. It's going to work in all three scenarios. Well, and it needs to because I always remember, you know, many years ago reading the quote from Viktor Frankl where he talks about, you know, the meaning that you're placing on what's going on around you. And, and, you know, often we can interpret someone else's behaviour and put a meaning on it that actually doesn't really exist. And so when you start with yourself, you look internally and you go, well, firstly, you know, what am I contributing to this dynamic? So therefore, what can I change? But also, how am I interpreting what's going on? Because perhaps I'm looking at my boss and going, they're ineffective, they're really hard to work with. But actually, perhaps they're in a really difficult situation and they've got a bad boss. And therefore, the best thing you can do is reach out and provide support and find out how you can better help them. Because when you do that, that then improves the relationship and also improves the outcomes that you can have. So when you start with you, you take accountability for what it is that you can change. One of the things that I see and we see in our roles is that people often are just, I guess it's that sense of powerlessness when it comes to a bad boss. So my boss doesn't do a good job and that just is what it is. Whereas when I was looking through your work and through the book, you are very clear on the fact that if you have a bad boss, you can do something about that. Talk to us about that because I think it's, it is challenging when there's a power dynamic and there's kind of a sense of, oh, my job relies on me having a good relationship. So I don't want to tell them that, oh, I, or give them feedback that maybe they're not effective. What do we do to actually influence the relationship? I think, first of all, it comes down to understanding what type of boss you've got as well because there are different strategies for different types of bosses. Um, and, you know, I've worked for people who, you know, you could still put into the bad category because they were ineffective, you know, off the scale, disorganised. But they're not a narcissist and they're not a bully. And so the way you deal with that is very different to if you are dealing with someone who is a narcissist um, and it's all about me. And so if you get a sense of what type of boss they are, you can then tailor your approach. But generically, there are a few things that you can do. Firstly, think long term because I look at probably one of the most um, challenging people that I've ever worked with and I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't worked for them. Now, it wasn't fun and I had to put an end stop to it in terms of I know if I stay in this environment any longer, it will actually emotionally destroy me. So I was able to go, what am I getting out of this? How long do I have the sort of bandwidth and the resilience to put up with this behavior, but also make sure that I'm getting out of this 
job what I need to be able to position me for something that is bigger and better down the track. So I was doing that kind of long-term perspective and very clear about what it was I was getting out of the role whilst also making sure I was very careful about taking care of my mental health and well-being. And I think that to me is always that defining factor in terms of if you're in a situation where it's destroying you and you can feel like it's sucking the life out of you, that's the time when you really need to vote yourself off the island. Um, because if you if that's impacting you in such a way that you can't turn up and still be your best, then it's time to move on. I really want to spend more time talking about that. But before we go any further, can we just revert back to this conversation about a bad boss can be someone who's disorganized. They can also be someone who's narcissistic uh, and maybe try and just flesh out what is a bad boss? So, I look at it across two dimensions and part of it is to what extent are they aware that they're a boss. So, are they unaware versus aware? And then to what extent, like where's their focus? Is it all about them? Or is it actually, you know, it's more, it's not just about them, they're also concerned with their team. So, when you do that, it's, you know, that classic sort of BCG for, you know, two by two metrics where you get kind of four uh, little boxes, you end up with different types of boss. And so, you'll have a boss which I classify as the mercenary and that's someone who it's all about them. They're unaware of their behavior. They also don't care. Um, and with the mercenary, because it's all about them and they're not, you know, their behavior is not deliberately directed towards you. You can actually work with someone like that because you know that. You know that you will be expendable, but if you can meet their needs, you can actually have quite a successful working relationship with them. But don't expect them to care for you and don't expect them to develop you because they're not interested in you except to the extent that it's going to help them be successful. Then there's what I call the believer. And this is someone who has a low level of self-awareness about the impact that they have on the people that they're working with. But they actually are genuinely wanting to not do a good job and they're really nice people. They're just totally hopeless as a leader because they're disorganized and they can't set direction. And that means you actually need to step up and almost control the relationship that you have with them. And I've worked for someone like that. And I remember someone once saying to me, but Michelle, it wasn't your role to manage them. And I said, yeah, I know. I said, but it was the classic case of manage up. I had to do that to get the outcomes that I needed. I found that if I didn't manage the workflow coming into the team, I would end up with all this pile of work later down the track, which then meant it made me look bad. People thought I was disorganized because he would pass on work to me too late. And this was actually quite junior in my career. I would have been in my early 20s at the time. And this is, you know, I'm dating myself because it was back in the days when you actually had a hard inbox where there was a little male person who would come and deliver mail. So for many of your listeners, they'd go, huh? What do you mean we get mail delivered? Um, anyway, and so he went on holidays and I um, started going through his mail as it's coming through. And I'm looking at things and I'm going, oh my God, you mean you get eight weeks notice about these things? How come I only ever get it like with 24 hours notice? So I started just sorting out all this, you know, the memos and stuff that was coming through. And then when he came back from holidays, I said, look, this is the process that I've been using and it seems to be really working for people. Are you okay if I just keep this going? And he was like, yeah, sure. It met my need. I got what I needed out of that relationship by changing how I worked to suit, in effect, a deficiency that he had in terms of how he led. Then the sort of the bottom quadrant is what I call the illusionist. This is someone who has, they know they're bad. They just don't, I was about to swear, they don't care. <laughs> they just do not care because it's all about them. Once again, you know, similar to the mercenary, you can be expendable. But I think this person is the worst of the lot because they know they 
just do not care. They are the master manipulator. They will throw you under the bus within a blink of an eye if it's going to help them get to where they need to get to. And they are totally not accountable for what it is that's really happening. The person who I would say is the sort of like the exemplar from a leadership perspective is what I call the liberator because they are aware of their behavior. They have high levels of self-awareness and they have actively developed that because self-awareness doesn't just happen by accident. You have to cultivate it. But they've also got a genuine interest in bringing out the best in the people around them. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect because no one is perfect. And so you've got to have a bit of, you know, give someone a bit of grace. But they are focused on really trying to every single day turn up be their best and inspire that in the people that work with them. It's so helpful to have those categories and to know, and I guess be able to diagnose when I think about my bosses that I've worked for, I can almost see where they would fit in those in those categories. Like one of them who was amazing to work for would be the liberator where she was very high level of self-awareness and then high care factor for those around her. And, and I guess... I'm interested when you were sharing your story about the person you were working for that didn't really realise how they're affecting the team. You mentioned taking the responsibility for something that probably wasn't, didn't sit with you. How much of our relationship with our boss is about taking responsibility? And, and at what points should we actually go, well, you know, this, I might be overcompensating for someone. How do you find that balance? I think it's about understanding what your needs are. So there would be some per- people who in that situation would have said, well, Michelle, I wouldn't have done what you've done because that's not my role. And my view was, yes, but if I continued to behave the way that I behaved and didn't adapt myself to suit his style, I would be less effective. Whereas by adapting my style, I became more effective. And that then meant eventually, you know, years down the track, I ended up being more senior than that, than, than that person because people kept saying, she's amazing. She just gets in and gets stuff done. And so I've always said to people, never be defined by your job description. You know, I was having a coaching session with someone who's quite early in their career the other day. And he was, you know, going, I don't really like this. I'm not sure about that. Um, And I just said to him, suck the marrow. And he goes, what does that mean? And I said, look, it's not an anti-vegan message. I said, but it means (laughs) look at the work and the job that you've got work out everything that you can do to get as much out of this role as you possibly can, but do not be defined by your job description. You know, I'd walk into an organization and they'd say, here your job is your job description. I'd look at it and go, oh yeah, here's all the stuff that I can do. Here's all the stuff that I want to do. And I would do both. And it was by doing the stuff that I wanted to do that I grew my skill set, but also grew my reputation across the organization. So typically in the organizations that I worked in, I didn't apply for roles. I would be tapped on the shoulder because people would go, she just gets in and gets stuff done and she's easy to work with and she works hard and she builds great teams. So all of that. And that's why I go, don't, people go too narrow. Don't go narrow, go broad. Something we're often talking about is this idea of putting in the effort before you get the reward and making sure that that's aligned to your values and your goals. And as you're speaking, I'm thinking about where we've had conversations on increasing your income, so asking and receiving a pay rise or a promotion. And it was only very recently that we recorded an episode that is now live where we talked about readying yourself for your first leadership role. And so much of that conversation was about what can you be doing before you've got the job title so that when the job title does come or that new position description does come, everyone kind of just goes, 
Oh yeah, well, congratulations. But I mean, it makes sense. You were already doing the job anyway, or you were already doing most of the job. And to your point, that decision, whoever's making the decision about who gets that leadership role, it's a no-brainer. They look around and they go, well, Michelle makes complete sense for this job because she's already demonstrating all of these behaviours and attributes that we're looking for. And I think sometimes we can get a little bit caught up in, well, when I've got the promotion or I've got the pay rise, then I'll start doing it. But that's, you know, for better or worse, not how the world works. And so often, (laughs) I'm sorry, Michelle, I've looked, I guess often we try and talk about this idea of not looking at someone else and going, oh, they're a bad boss, they're getting in my way, but thinking, well, if they're not doing enough, how can I use that as a learning opportunity for myself that it's investing in my future career and will then pay back in time? Absolutely. And the, the, yeah, it's that sense of relationship and leverage because if you can see a gap, you know, it's a classic mar- marketing campaign. You see the gap in the market and you fill the gap. When you fill that gap yes. and fill that need, people then tap you on the shoulder. Um, and so it always comes back to absolutely aligning with your values, but also what do you want to be known for? So when you're really clear on what it is you're known for, that follows you through the rest of your career. So I was seen as a problem solver. She comes in, she fixes broken teams, she gets stuff done. And so I would get really hard, complex kind of environments thrown at me. I loved it because once the kind of problem was fixed, I'd then be bored and ready for something else. So when you're clear about the environment that brings out the best in you, what it is that you like doing and where you like to focus your energy, that then makes it easy for you to be able to go, here's where I need to focus. So, if I can pick up on that word environment, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how much of an influence things like culture and environment have on navigating a situation with a bad boss or maybe even bringing out the worst in all of us. Because to your point earlier, I think I've been a bad boss before too. I'm working on it. Hopefully, I'm not anymore, but I think I've been one. (laughs) Well, hey, after listening to this, someone might ring you and go, yeah, I think you were. (laughs) Um, Look, I think environment has a really huge part to play in all of this and look, some workplaces, they're really hard, really hard and, you know, and maybe this is, you know, you can call me naive or maybe overly optimistic but it's very rare that someone will wake up in the morning and think, don't, no one wakes up and goes, I want to be an asshole today. Like that's just not, people don't do that. And yet people can get into a work environment and be awful to each other. And so there are systemic issues in organisations that often create the environment. People feel undermined and so therefore they back channel. People feel belittled and so therefore they you know do power over because they feel like they need to exert power because that then makes them feel better about themselves so there's often you know psychological issues that sort of sit underneath all of this as well and so if you want good leaders you do need to look at the environment but I also don't think that's an excuse I don't think you as a leader can sit back and go well it's not my fault I'd be great if I was somewhere else Uh, because you can take charge of what's going on in your own domain and I've seen situations where you know really kind of really horrible kind of general workplaces and there'll be this little island this little sanctuary of happiness and goodness because the team and the leader have worked together to go we don't like the dominant culture we are going to create our own subculture that enables us to thrive. Yeah, and it's amazing when you are in an environment that it and most people have experienced a toxic culture at some point in their career, and it's 
really hard in those contexts to kind of get out of, I guess, the negative spiral or conversation. And I know one of the things that um, you've mentioned, Michelle, is around this concept of like binging on the drama because we hear a lot about um, poor managers and this manager sucks and this manager can't do their job and blah, blah, blah. But in order to get to the constructive phase where you can actually do something about it, you have to get above that um, kind of just negative talk. How do you actually do that? Yeah. I always remember the Michelle Obama comment, when they go low, we go high. And it's so much of that. The, the challenge, you know, if you talk to evolutionary biologists, they would say that we are hardwired for gossip. It's just part of... Um, who we are and how we've developed. You know, we all love a bit of office drama. It's all kind of like the intrigue. I was always the last to find out. <laughs> so I was never very good at it. You know, I'd make some comment like, oh, do you realise it's so-and-so and so-and-so? Like, I'm like, oh, my God, Michelle, everyone knows they're having an affair. And I'm like, right, okay. I clearly missed all of that because I probably just didn't want to know. I always think it was just safer to not know. Um, but you know and, you know, we all can all spot them, the people who are the epicentre of the drama. They either create the drama or they feed off it or they somehow pivot so that someone else is the centre of the drama but actually they started it. And they are very, very destructive to team culture. And so for you, this to me connects to your integrity and to your values. You know, do you want to be known as the office gossip? Because that's not going to help you in terms of how your career develops and grows. And I think it's also be very careful who you confide in. And that's why you really do need someone who is a confidant who's outside the organization. I've seen situations where people have thought that they've had really good relationships with someone. They've done the whole, I just need to vent. They've vented just to get it off their chest. And then they find that that piece of venting has then landed elsewhere where they weren't expecting it to go and that has then caused really big damage to their reputation but also to relationships. So I think you have to be careful about who you share with and that doesn't mean that you don't, you're not open about things because I do think it's important in terms of culture to create that environment where you can share and challenge and also be really transparent about how something is impacting you but that's different to oh, far, you know, you know, so and so far out there giving me the absolute irrits today. You do need to be able to do that. Do it safely. Find a friend who does not work with you. The other thing I've seen um, play out is where people will go and confide in or vent to a peer when in reality, it's not actually the peer that can help them fix the problem. It's either themselves or it is their boss. But sometimes that problem might be to do with the boss or... Um, Maybe it is a bad boss and, and there's not that trust there and there's not that safe place to go and be able to speak to them. Do you feel, Michelle, like there is room to, I guess, or how do you navigate that situation? Do you go and talk to HR? Do you go and find a leader from another department who you can more safely confide in if you feel like it's something that does need to be solved within the organisation? It depends. So there's, I always think with all of this, it, there's, there's caveats. If you've got a mentor, sometimes talking it through with a mentor can be really powerful because the mentor can, you know, they'll be more senior, so they'll be able to help you see things from that person's perspective. Um, there are absolutely times to go to HR, but I also think it's almost like to me, HR is like the last step in the process or one of the last, because once you get to that point, the relationship 
is almost irreparable unless the boss is able to really be open about the fact that they need to change things because you're almost ending up in that kind of mediation role and that puts a totally different spin on it to sitting down and having a conversation with your boss where you go, I really want to work with you more effectively, but I feel like something's not working. Are you open to having a conversation about how we work together more effectively? Um, you know, I've had conversations with, you know, previous bosses of mine. I remember one time I was working on this really big project and it was really hard and I just didn't feel like I had my boss's support. And I sat her down and I said, I can't do this without you. And she said, what do you mean? I said, I don't feel like you're backing me in meetings. And she said, but I'm absolutely backing you. I said, it's not visible enough for me. Um, and I said, I can't do this without you because I'm, you know, going up against some really heavy players who have got different stakes in the game and I need your support to be visible. So I've always erred on the, um, you know, the side of, you know, don't ask, don't get. If you don't put it out there, It'll never happen. Um, and one of the things I often get my um, coaching clients to do is what I call the premeditation of evil, which sounds horrible, but it's an old stoic um, philosophy practice where you say to yourself, if I do this, what's the worst possible thing that could happen? And typically the worst possible thing is, oh, they might get mad at me or they might let me go, which is like highly unlikely. And what it does is it actually takes the sting out of the tail because when you actually go, actually, that's the worst possible thing. But actually, if I do do it, I'm going to get this. You work out that the trade-off is worth it. Um, and you go, yeah, it's got risk attached to it, but the reward from doing it far outweighs the risk. And I love how you've approached that conversation, Michelle, of just going, I'm feeling like I don't have the support and I need it because a manager hearing that, they actually want to know your feedback. Like most managers, if I think even now I think about your four categories of manager, the majority of them will be somewhat open unless you have that kind of narcissistic person, um, which I'm sure we'll get to in a moment because we would love to dig into that. But before we do, I just want to do a little case study to get your advice because a lot of people don't know how to have that conversation. Like you make that conversation sound really easy, but it can be difficult if you're working with someone and you don't maybe feel like there's trust or safety in the dynamic. So well, maybe they're one of those, they're in one of those quadrants where they're unaware and they're just a bit of a clueless boss. It's like, how do you open their eyes to what you're feeling? Yeah. It's, uh, so I was working, there's a manager um, that I'd kind of seen over the years and one of their team members had come to HR rather than probably going directly to them because they felt really nervous about how it would be received. And they said, my manager's a control freak. They don't, they're not open to feedback and I, unless I see some change, I'm going to leave. And this person was an amazing, amazing talent and one of the things I found is, well, okay, well, how do you how do you help that person have a conversation? I, I would say that manager sat in the mercenary category. Um, what would you recommend for someone who's got a manager that's in that mercenary category? How do they go about this conversation? When someone's a mercenary, they think they're awesome. And so, and I know this sounds revolting and it's kind of like, you know, vomit territory. You do need to stroke the ego um, in terms of, you know, I love what I do and it's amazing working with you and there's so much that I can learn from you and I'm really keen to do more. But I think there could be – and I think there could be – actually, avoid the but word. And I think there could be some ways that I could contribute more. Would you be open to us having a conversation about what that could look like? 
So you make it all about how awesome they are. You make it all about you doing more. And then they kind of go like, it's very rare. They turn around, no, I don't want you to do more. And then in that conversation, you say, okay, so when I'm doing more, are there opportunities? Because you're obviously going to be so busy. Are there opportunities for me just to run with this rather than having to check it in, check in with you? Um, and if they go, no, you go, okay, so what would you need to see for me to feel comfortable to just let me run with it? So you're actually asking them to get really specific with you. That's a very different conversation to you going in and saying, I feel like you don't trust me. Because as soon as you go on the negative, they're going to be on the defensive. And so what you want to do is gently open up the avenue to a conversation where you're inviting them to have a conversation with you. You're putting an offer. They can choose to accept. They can choose to not accept that offer. And then you start to dig in. Oh, okay, but if I do this, what would you do? And if I did that, what could you do? So it becomes this give and take conversation, but very non-adversarial. You know, if you want to go up against your boss, um, you need to be very clear about how that's going to work. And I've done that. I mean, very, you know, one of my last kind of corporate gigs, you know, but by that stage, you know, I was at director level, I was very senior. Um, and so different power dynamics in the relationship and also different risk factors because, you know, if they let me go, it probably didn't really matter um, at that point in terms of the stage of my career. But I sat my boss down and I said, you know, I look at the hours that I'm working and I look at the outcomes that I'm having. And if I was working these sorts of hours in other organizations, I'd be setting the world on fire. And I said, I'm setting nothing on fire in this organization. And he at least had the self-awareness to say, this is about me, isn't it? And I said, yes. I said, you don't trust me. And he said, yes, I do. I said, I'm director level and I've got authority to org- you know, to basically order the sandwiches. I said, this is ridiculous. And I said, it's just, it's a very different to how I'm used to working in previous organizations. And so we then shifted and worked through how that could change. But I also very quickly worked out he would never change because that was part of his operating style. So I left. And let's talk about that part of it. So you left. So many people, and we know that old kind of adage of, People don't leave organisations, they leave bosses, they leave managers. And thinking back to that story of you stroking the ego, I guess (laughs) this is going to be a long way of saying what I want to say, but so you've got a version of that conversation where you stroke the ego of someone to get what you want. And I guess in that scenario, you know, I want to stay in this business. So I'm going to do what needs to be done, even if I find it a bit like how are you going? Von worthy. Von worthy, yeah. Yeah, well, well you're, you're placating them and you're actually placating them to meet their needs. And there is a part of you that can kind of go, this feels revolting. But you think about it, it's relationships. Um, and so you need to find a way to make that relationship work for you and that's what you're trying to do. But you also need to, like the underlying message, don't sell your soul because if you do yes. it in a way that sells your soul, that erodes you. Yeah. So now feels like the perfect time to take a break. We'll be back soon. Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we've created a bunch of different podcasts. So go and check out My Millennial Money, My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, and Gen Z Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So you, you go through that process, but then there's the other side of it of what you just mentioned of, you start to realize this bad boss, they're going to be a bad boss for me, yeah. like other yeah. people they might be fine with, but for me, they're a bad boss and it's not going to work. What, what are the kind of warning signs that it's probably getting time to leave? So look, there's a couple of things. And the interesting part of it is sometimes you won't see it. It's the people around who love and care you for you who will. And so if I look at it for me, it was really fascinating because I'd always been successful. You know, yeah, I'd had tough bosses. I'd had really, you know, some great bosses, some awful bosses, but I'd always been able to make situations work. And I had in my little kind of head sort of this mantra, well, but I get things working because I work hard. I just need to keep working harder. So I, my day, my work day just kept getting longer and longer and longer. You know, I was doing crazy things like getting to work at sort of 6.30 in the morning and leaving work at 10 o'clock at night. And I still couldn't shift the dynamic in terms of getting outcomes. And it was my husband who saw it. And he said to me, Michelle, I have never seen you doubt yourself so much. He said, that place is killing you. And it was like, it was a real wake-up call because I thought, you know, I'm pretty self-aware. I'm good at what I do. I have great connections. I knew I'd find other work. And I, that was over a weekend and I went in on the Monday morning and pretty much resigned on the spot. Now, he didn't want me to go. He was like, we need to find a way to make this work. And I said, no. And I said, and this isn't about you and me because he said, he's a nice person. I said, you're a nice person. I said, I just can't work for you. I said, I cannot thrive under your type of leadership. I am used to a much more autonomous style. And I said, I need to be able to just do my own thing in my own way. And I said, and the way, he, the way he had a very interesting way of thinking. And so, he didn't have a lot of clarity when he gave instructions about what he was that he wanted. And so, you spun a lot of wheels. And I said, this environment is not for me. Um, now, that was not easy to do. Like it sounds, as I'm sharing with you, very easy. But at the time, I was absolutely petrified about the damage to my brand. You know, I'd been in the corporate world for 25 years. I'd been headhunted. It was a big deal. We'd moved from Melbourne to Sydney. My whole family had moved up from Melbourne to Sydney. My husband had moved, all of that kind of stuff. You know, we had people in our house in Melbourne. We were renting in Sydney until we'd worked out how long we were going to stay. It was a big deal. And I was worried about how that was going to be managed. Um, and so I was very direct with him because <laughs> I said, we need to find a way to manage this. I said, because how you handle this, you potentially fuck my brand. And I've worked 25 years to have a really good reputation and I don't want that destroyed because of the fact that this isn't able to work. Um, anyway, we managed it and, you know, 
seven years later, I'm in a much, much better place. (laughs) And this feels like such an important time to remind our listeners. So we have talked, uh, and it's funny, I don't normally do this, but I'm doing it twice so far. We've talked before in a different episode about having an exit strategy. And Shell and I have talked about this idea that the moment that you start a new role, you actually need to be thinking about what leaving that could look like. And that's not about uh, this expectation that it's going to fail. We don't have a crystal ball. It's more about making sure that whatever happens over the months or years, you're setting yourself up so that you've got options. And so you can feel, albeit it would be difficult, some sense of freedom and choice to be able to turn up on Monday and say, you know what, enough's enough and I'm going to move on, but do that with a sense of security and safety that you're going to be okay, or you know, even just a sense of clarity about what do you need to uh, include in your exit strategy so that your personal brand is not damaged and your reputation stays intact. And so always be thinking not just about what is your next job, but what is your exit strategy in your current role as well. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm thinking, I should have listened to your podcast about eight, <laughs> eight years ago. Uh, look, it's interesting. I've always had this view particularly with money, that, you know, how you manage your money has a huge impact on your career. And so, I'm a saver, not a spender. And we, you know, I've always made very deliberate decisions about um, finances. And that has helped me and given me power when it comes to career choices, because I've always known that, well, if I walk away, I know I'll be able to find something else. And even if there's a lag, um, I've got money in the bank because I've been very deliberate about how I've spent money and what I've done. The interesting thing in this particular situation, because I was not planning on it happening, it did mean that I walked away really having absolutely no idea what I was going to do next. The best thing I did was give myself time. And, you know, the the easy thing for me to do would have been to have done another corporate gig because I was a corporate chick. I knew how the world in that environment worked. But I took myself off. I did lots of different things. I learned how to bake bread. I um, went on meditation retreats and all sorts of things. And it was in that space. And I still remember coming home from a meditation retreat and saying to Craig, I'm done. And Craig goes, done with what? I said, done with corporate. And he goes, oh, cool. What are you going to do? I said, I'm going to open a business. And he goes, brilliant. In what? I said, I've got no idea. And that was seven years ago. And so I really, I literally had no idea about what it is that I wanted to do. I just knew that I loved learning. I loved being challenged. And those two career drivers would never change. But I no longer needed security. What I needed was autonomy. And the only way I would get autonomy was to work for myself. It's it's interesting, all those learnings that you've had about autonomy, security, actually came out of this experience with a bad boss. How important have those experiences been for you in your own career? Oh, pivotal. I mean, I I look back and go, if I hadn't had that situation, I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing now. And the fascinating thing is, you know, people who know me well have said to me, you know, numerous times over the last years, sure, you're now doing what you were born to do. I've never seen you happier. I've never seen you just more comfortable in your own skin. And I love the work that I do. I just think it's fascinating and it's a privilege and all of those kind of wonderful words and look you know it's hard you know and you would know this when you run a business and there's you know always juggling multiple different things but it's a very was you know even though it was a reaction to an environment it then became a very conscious choice. The question I've been waiting uh, all episode to ask is can a bad boss 
change its stripes, so to speak. So can you be a bad boss one day and then at another point in the future be a good boss? Yes. <laughs> Do you want me Short to explain more than that? <laughs> yes. I would love you too. <laughs> and, and look, it comes down to do you think that leadership is a learned skill? Because if you think that leadership is a learned skill, then yes, absolutely. If you feel that leadership is innate and you're either born with it and that's it, um, then you would take a different perspective. But, you know, we know through all of the study around neuroscience and the plasticity of the brain, we can shape our brain. That therefore means that the choices you make of how you learn and what you do every single day can impact how you're going to then turn up the next day. And I often use myself as a, as a case point because I was once a bad boss. And I often say to people, I wasn't a bad person. I just had a mixed view about what it meant to lead. And that was just, you know, I hadn't had good role models up until that point. And then I get into an environment where I had an amazing role model. And she really challenged me because she said, you know, Michelle, it's not about the work. The work will happen. It's about how you inspire them, how you help them be their best. Because when you do that, the work just happens. And so I learned a huge amount what it means to lead by her. And also what I found is early in my career, I had this really, it's like a distance thing. I was very, oh, you know, got to be professional, can't be too, oh, people can't get to know you and don't be friends with the people that you work with because if they get their friends with you, they'll take advantage of you. And then you learn that that's, that's all bollocks, um, that the more people know you, the more they connect with you, the more they then want to build a relationship with you. Therefore, the more loyal they are, the more they'll do, the more you kind of come together and bring out the best in each other. So absolutely, you can learn and you can be a better leader. You have to want it though. It's not going to happen if you don't want it to happen. I'm just thinking about our listeners and if you're listening right now and you're in a job and you're working for someone you'd classify as a bad boss and you want to know what could be the thing you could do next week. So what could what would you say, Michelle, any one of our listeners could do from next week that would be a practical way they could see change? There's a couple of things. Firstly, you really do need to self-assess. Are you a bad employee? Like, is that why they're a bad boss? Because they're writing Love hard. That. Because actually, you're just not turning up and doing what it is that you need to be doing. Um, and then secondly, flip the lens. If you sat back and assumed good intent, because often what happens when someone is ineffective as a leader, we assume bad intent. They don't like me. They're mean. They're nasty. They're this, they're that. Da, 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 da. Actually, maybe it's got nothing to do with you. Maybe they've got a bad boss. Maybe they're struggling. And so one of the best things that you could do is actually sit down and say to them, hey, you know, I noticed that there's a lot going on at the moment. Are you okay? And is there anything more that you need for me? And then the boss goes, because it can actually be really lonely being a leader. People often don't realize that, but there are a lot of leaders out there who, mm. you know, they, they don't know who they can connect with and share ideas with or share how they're feeling. And if you go to them and say, what do you need from me? They might go, oh, wow, isn't it nice that someone noticed? I mean, I, I used to always have in the back of my head, one of my goals when I started a role was I'd sit back and I'd go, how do I help my leader or my boss be more successful? I found the more I did that, the more I was successful because they'd go, she's amazing. She just makes my life easy. And that then meant I was successful. So stop wondering what your boss can do for you and start thinking about what you can do for them. That's so good. And I wonder as well if there's also room to 
provide not only constructive or challenging feedback to your boss, but provide them with uh, positive feedback. So if they do something that's really working for you, reinforce that to them and say, you know, that that was awesome. I really appreciate the way that you approach this. I feel like I was able to do a better job because you did X, Y, Z. I think that to your point about leadership being lonely is sometimes we can be very harsh critics of our boss, uh, but maybe we're missing also reinforcing when they're doing something really awesome for us. And and everyone wants feedback. Everyone Mm. wants to know that they're valued, that they're being appreciated. So look, I think that's a lovely idea. Can I ask the last question? All right. Uh, So I would like to look at this from that perspective of what if I'm a bad boss? And so what does someone do if they think they might be at risk of being a bad boss or if they're not really sure if they're a good or bad boss? So perhaps they're sitting in one of those quadrants that lacks self-awareness. What could we do if we're concerned about that? One of the best things you can do is get a 360. So do uh, an anonymous 360. You do it at multiple tiers across the organization so that you can get segmented data, feedback on what your peers are saying, your direct reports, your boss, your boss's boss. You can get suppliers or customers depending on the industry that you're in. Really powerful. But you need to use ones that have some sort of scientific rigor that sit underneath them. And, you know, I often say to people, I had many of them done to me during my life in corporate. And they were really powerful because they really help you see the gap between how you see yourself and how other people experience you. And when you see that gap, then you can go, okay, what, what do I want to do with that? Now that I have that insight, what do I need to shift and change so that I can turn up and be more effective as a leader? So good. I love when we get to understand those gaps and we actually get the power to to start to fill them and develop them. It has been so good, Michelle, to chat with you today. Just for our listeners' sake, how do they get to know you, find more about you and your book, Bad Boss? Uh, the easiest is just go direct to my website, which is michellegibbings.com. Um, yeah, so Bad Boss, I've also got a book, which is Career Leap, which is all around careers, and Step Up, which is all around how to influence. So, um, yes, if anyone's interested, reach out. Happy to have a chat. Well, thanks, Michelle. Great to chat. Well, uh, hopefully, we'd love to have you uh, chat soon about careers, Step or one of those other areas. Yeah, love to. Always happy to have a chat. And thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Michelle. Bye. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we've created a bunch of different podcasts. So go and check out My Millennial Money, My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, and Gen Z Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast.